Welcome to the Pause Purpose Play podcast with me, Michaela Thomas, clinical psychologist, couples therapist, and founder of The Thomas Connection. I help high-striving busy people let go of the pressure of perfection to create more joy, connection, and compassion in their lives. On this podcast, we promote balance of a burnout through giving you the permission to pause, the curiosity to find your purpose, and the courage to play. Welcome back to the Pause Purpose Play podcast with me, Michaela Thomas. In this episode, you'll be hearing me speaking to another couples expert, trying to figure out how we can have better connections and better intimacy after becoming parents. So you'll be hearing two couples experts talking about the hardship of having sex after having had kids with the sleep deprivation, the change in roles, possible breastfeeding, exhaustion, and perhaps resentment going on between you, getting in the way of you getting together. So you'll be hearing a lot about this, but don't worry, we'll be lifting you up by also providing hope around how you can reconnect again sexually with emotional and physical intimacy. Catherine and I also covered relationship connection a bit more broadly, thinking about values the couples can have and how to keep the communication going to keep getting to know each other. We also reflected together on how hard 2020 and COVID-19 has been for couples, with the strain of home education, financial worries, and being on top of each other 24-7 without support, and how important it is to seek professional help before you struggle to the point of no return in your relationship. But we also discovered how actually some couples have found meaning from the hardship by reflecting on how they want to be in their lives going forward once all of this is finished, and some feeling more connected than ever. Make sure to stay to the very end of this discussion, because Catherine delivers a really great couple of nuggets at the end around imperfection and playfulness. The reflections you hear me say in this chat come from both my clinical work with couples, and also from having written my upcoming book, The Lasting Connection, on how to develop love and compassion for yourself and your partner. You can pre-order a copy of this on Amazon right now, and the book is out on February the 11th. I can't wait to share it with you. Now on with the show and let me introduce my amazing guest. Catherine Topham Sly is a BCAP accredited counsellor, writer and speaker who specialises in relationships and particularly the challenges of staying connected with your partner whilst raising a family together. A communication and intimacy specialist, Catherine offers research-based therapy, coaching and online courses supporting parents to reconnect and stay close after having had kids. Today we're going to talk a lot about how to have better, more connected sex after becoming parents of little ones. So with me, I have a friend of mine from Instagram who's another couples expert. And after the introduction you've already heard, I'm going to just drive straight into talking about some quite interesting topics. And Although we're not going to try to swear in this episode, there might be the mention of SEX. So if you have little ones around listening, make sure that they're not tuning into what we're talking about today around intimacy. So welcome, Catherine. It's so lovely to have you on the show. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. Fantastic. So why don't we start by telling the listeners who may not yet be familiar with you and your work a little bit about what you do. So I am a counsellor. I work with individuals and couples. Um, My real specialism is working with couples when they've gone through the transition to parenthood. And what often happens is that we find that it's much more difficult than we expect. 
And I usually work with people, maybe they're a couple of years down the line, maybe sooner, and they're finding that they're just feeling really disconnected in their relationships. So sometimes it'll be that they're having lots of conflict. Sometimes it'll just be that they just don't feel as close as they used to. So I work with them. I offer coaching sessions, counseling, and um, I also do some online courses and have some downloads as well to support people with intimacy. Hmm. And I even like that, you know, the brand name that you have, Insight and Connection, it tells us a lot about what, what, kind of what values you work on with couples, that it's important to get insight and make meaning of what's happened with your disconnection before you can build that connection again. Do you want to tell us, the listeners a bit more about why you chose those two words? Yeah, it's one of those things I sometimes regret choosing those two words because it's so long, it's really inconvenient. <laughs> it doesn't work well. <laughs> it doesn't work perfectly on the internet. But it is a great name because it's exactly what we need. And I was trying to come up with an umbrella term for the different things that I offer. Because what happens in counselling is that we gain insight and we feel connection. And it can be the connection with the therapist that is so, so helpful for us to learn and change and grow. Or it can be the connection that we have with our partners. But also for the other things that I was offering at the time, which I hope to go back to at some point, um, I was running events where I live in Brighton and Hove called Relationship Goals 2.0, which was all about what love looks like on the other side of having kids. So I, you know, I absolutely love my work. I really love working with couples, especially, but I just had a strong feeling of like, I need to get out there and share this stuff with more people. It's so, so useful to understand what all the research tells us into how to have a great relationship after kids and to learn those skills. So I wanted to widen my reach. So I started giving talks in a room above a pub. And that was when I was trying to come up with the name when those things were all coming together. And I thought, this is what I want to share with these people is to, you know, to support them to have the insight that they need about themselves and each other and how relationships work in order to have the kind of really satisfying feeling of connection that keeps us happy in our relationships. So it sounds like you come up with a really brilliant name, although it might be a little bit long. It's a brilliant name. Thank you. So when you're thinking about those days back before pandemic and all this happened, where you're able to connect with couples, talking about these early days after parenthood, what were the learning points for you? What did you see that people struggled with? You know, what were the main stuck points for couples in their intimacy once they become parents? There, there are so many different elements to it. And I think one of the things that I've really realized is just how much the physical and the emotional intimacy are two sides of the same coin. Mm. It's, it's such a tough time, isn't it? You know, that transition is harder than most of us expect going through the, you know, we sort of, we, we, we think about, we plan, we prepare for birth, but then the recovery from pregnancy and birth, the hormones being everywhere, the, the impact of sleep deprivation and the stress of learning to parent, you know, we have this image of what it's going to be like, that it is quite often very, very different. And it's really normal in that time to you know, have less privacy, less freedom. We, we're worried about money often. We, we have less time together, less conversation. We're sleep deprived, as I mentioned. And, and this often leads to less feeling of closeness between us because we have less touch. We're, we're not talking as much. We have less sex. And it can be really hard to find a way back to each other. This kind of lack of emotional and physical closeness can sometimes become the norm. Mm. And I think that, that linking those two together is very important. 
we're thinking about intimacy, often people think that that's synonymous with sex, but there are many different levels and layers to intimacy that for a lot of couples I see, they can't engage physically in their intimacy until they've engaged and connected emotionally. That when you have no trust or when you don't share things, it's really hard to then bring that into sex. You know, what's your experience of that with the couples that you see? How these two link together? I mean, that's that's definitely the case. And often what can become really difficult is when you have two partners who for whom that kind of um, the passage from one to the other goes in the opposite direction. So say, for example, um, with a heterosexual relationship, it usually tends to be the man who is the one who experienced sexual desire quite spontaneously and will seek emotional connection through sex. Whereas they'll often have a partner who tends to experience sexual desire more responsively. So it's only when things that they find sexy are already happening, like kissing and holding, that they start to think, oh, I quite fancy some sex now. And they'll often be like you just described more needing to feel emotional connection in order to want sex. And it's it's definitely not a black and white thing that it's, you know, a, even in heterosexual couples, you often get it running the opposite way. But I just mentioned because that's, that's the most common pattern. Mm. And, it, you know, this can lead to a vicious cycle because if you've got one partner initiating sex because they're feeling a spontaneous desire for it and they really want to connect with their partner through it, but the other partner's feeling exhausted, not feeling like their own self, you know, not not having had that chance to connect is, is so much harder. We have so much less time together. Then quite often what can happen is that they get rejected. And sometimes that rejection can be quite insensitive because if you're feeling like your partner's making an advance on you, which is insensitive, then you're likely to reject them in a way that's insensitive. And then we get a situation where one partner ends up feeling rejected and frustrated. The other one's feeling maybe resentful, guilty, and they're both lonely. And I think probably most of us in long-term relationships have been through at least a bit of this at some point. You know, it's, it's very, very common for this to happen. But what can happen is that if we don't understand the differences between us and we don't realize about that, you know, whether we're seeking emotional connection through sex or the other way around, you know, how we tend to get aroused, then we, we tend, of course, we're going to interpret things through our own lens. And so then we tend to take things personally. And that's when it then can lead into conflict, disconnection, finding it difficult to keep talking about things. It's a tough pattern. It's a very tough pattern. When we know that some interesting MRI studies actually looking at rejection uh, and what brain areas are lighting up when we're feeling rejected, when we're looking at that in a big brain scanner, that actual rejection lights up the same areas of brain as pain. So physically mm -hmm. hurts to be, to be turned down, you know, and it's especially by someone you love. What can couples do to mitigate this then, to kind of break that vicious cycle that they get into? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's definitely lots that we can do on both sides. Um, you know, recognizing that usually an invitation for sex is an invitation to connect is really important. So knowing that you're likely to, your partner is likely to be feeling pain if they do feel rejected. That's just a really helpful thing to be aware of to make us really think about how we can reject much more sensitively and how we can offer other ways to connect and talk about why it is that we're saying no and what we need in order to make it a yes in future. And those, those needs, you know, they, they're things like thinking about what you need in order to feel sexy again. So, you know, it probably means taking some time and space to do the things that make you feel like yourself again. And then also asking your partner for what you actually need in order to get in the mood. So, you know, saying, 
I actually need you to hold me and touch me and kiss me for a good like 20 minutes, half an hour is what works for most people who experience responsive desire before you even think about initiating sex. That's what I need to be in the mood so that you break that pattern of it just being a, a, just a no, you know, a kind of a one word answer that, you, that you, op- mm. you open up the conversation about why it's no and what you might need in order for it to be yes. Mm, and that's a high level skill to have, though, for for so many women who experience shame or taboo around expressing their needs, not just their sexual needs, but their needs overall. And especially a lot of the listeners to this podcast would be, you know, getting caught up in patterns of, say, people pleasing and saying yes when they actually really mean no. Mm-hmm. Is that something you've seen as well that, you know, the pattern of maybe saying yes to a sexual invite and then maybe regretting it or not being in, you know, not enjoying it. What what can we do about patterns like that? Yeah, definitely. That's certainly a thing. I mean, it's so hard, isn't it? It's a kind of an intersection of two things that um, women in particular find really, really difficult here, isn't it? Talking about needs and talking about sex. So when it comes to talking about your needs around sex, it's really, really hard, isn't it? Mm. But the thing is about these kinds of conversations is that they only get easier by us do us having them, you know, by us kind of leaning into it, feeling the awkwardness, telling our partners, this is so, so hard for me to talk about. I, fight, I feel so awkward. I feel embarrassed. I'm worried about what you're going to say and how you're going to take it. But I really want us to just start trying to have a little bit more conversation around sex. You know, just, just starting very gently and talking about talking can be really helpful. Because mm, anything that's worth having is, is worth working hard for, in, in a sense, actually, what I'm hearing you say is that for couples to reconnect sexually, you know, in terms of physical and emotional intimacy, they, they need to do some hard things, they need to have some tough conversations. And maybe even just saying that out loud, exactly how hard it is makes it maybe a bit easier for you to take time listening to your partner, giving pauses. But I guess it's also that sense of expectation, you know, having realistic expectations for how much sex we're actually having, uh, you know, after just having had a baby. And there's something I, I come across a lot, you know, the myths and the unrealistic expectations of how much sex people are having, especially how much else, you know, everyone else is having so much more sex than we are, is, is a common thing that I'm hearing. In your experience, in, in, you know, what, what, what are the stats telling us? How much sex are people having after they've become parents? Most people think that other people are having a lot more sex than they are. You know, statistically, people these days are having a lot more sex than we were 20 years ago. The the average is around three or four times a month. The period of life where people are having the least sex is actually, um, well, or what's reported the least is women around their late 30s, if I remember accurately. So it's absolutely typical of this phase of life to be having a lower amounts of sex, probably than you think yeah. than you think other people are, and then you might have been at other times in your life. That's totally normal. And the thing about sex is that really it's about quality, not quantity. I mean, if you think about what you were saying a minute ago about finding it difficult to say no to a sexual experience that you don't really want, you know, how much better would it be to have much less sex that you enjoyed much more? Mm, absolutely that it's about quality it's about that connection and i often talk about sort of difference between performative sex and connected sex that performative sex is almost like we're we're putting on a show as if we're we're hoping to impress someone and that can that can sometimes happen in the early stages of, of a relationship in my experience where we don't really have the trust built up yet to be able to say what we like and dislike and we might not even know with that particular partner how what do we like and dislike with them 
we start to almost like feel like I need to impress them and I need to be good at sex, quote unquote good. Mm -hmm. Uh, I wonder if that, I mean, that's maybe coming up less for partners after they've had children because at that point, you know, anyone who's been present at a birth, you kind of know that all the, Mm -hmm. you know, all the secrets are let out. There's nothing much to hold back Mm -hmm. once you've seen your partner give birth. So what are your experiences of that, of how, you know, people try to impress each other or going to get these ideas around how sex should be? It can be really tough because it's a it's a transition, really. I think that happens in most relationships. You know, if and unless you kind of right from the start had very connecting, authentic, messy sex. You know, if you did have that kind of experience of of um, having performative sex, it can be really hard to make the shift and to start having those conversations that you need to have and and to do things differently. And one thing that's really important to remember, you know, we've been talking about how difficult it is for women to have these kind of conversations. It's just as difficult for men. So mm. to remember that your partner probably feels as uncomfortable about talking about this stuff, as worried about it. You know, they also are concerned about how what you think about their body, how you see them, whether they need to perform in a certain way. I mean, that's a huge thing for men, performance anxiety. So to really mm. remember that you're both in the same place with this, it's, you know, you're going to have different experiences of it, but it's hard for both of you to have the conversations and to ask for what you need and to make the shift into doing things a bit differently. Mm. And obviously there's another vicious cycle created there. If if the man puts a lot of pressure on himself to perform and that kind of level of anxiety and and pressure is obviously has a detrimental impact physically. So we're then, you know, the very thing we're afraid of happening may well then happen and not being able to get an erection or sustain an erection or not being able to ejaculate. And that can be really difficult as well for, for self-esteem and the more than you feel ashamed of it, the more that cycle then continues. So I'm wondering, because of your experience with couples after birth, what about when we've experienced something really difficult in the birth or in the early postnatal period, maybe a high needs baby or a very traumatic birth? What happens for those couples trying to reconnect sexually afterwards? It can really make it really really difficult and I think the first thing that we need to do is to recognize what you've been through you know if you've been through that kind of experience we can sometimes try and sort of just push it away you know we say things like um oh it was a traumatic birth but you know at least at least mum and baby came through it healthy I mean that people say things like that in order to try and make people feel better But actually, the real situation is that we're grateful to be healthy and the trauma of the birth has had a lasting impact and that needs to be acknowledged. And sometimes it can be enough for a couple to talk that through on their own, just the two of them, and to really open up to each other about what it's been like. And that can be the first step on reconnecting. But often we need a bit more support. So I would always recommend to anybody who's been through a really hard time like that to see a counsellor in order to process what you've been through whether it's um on your own or together it's always worth looking into what support is available Mm. so you might mean actually need to uh process and heal that traumatic memory together with a professional like a a therapist a counselor or psychologist before you're able to move forwards with intimacy to not create further ruptures in your relationship by having those repeated rejections repeated no's or even worse the yeses when you actually meant no, which can be really challenging. Yeah, exactly. So it's a lot of hardship people go through when they become parents. No wonder that the relationship satisfaction does go down after you become uh, parents. But it does; it is possible to bring it back up again. And what have you seen 
as I'm sure it's kind of a beautiful experience to witness when couples have reconnected. Can you think of maybe two or three things that you've seen people do when they've come out the other side, when they have reconnected? What do people do more of then together? It's such a wonderful thing to see the difference. You know, the main difference that I see in couples who are feeling connected again is that they, they're finding a way to lean on each other. So when they're hurting, when they're going through difficult things in life, you know, whether it is the kind of things that we've been talking about, about having to process difficult times that you've been through, or whether it's just the everyday stresses and strains, the things that annoy you, they are talking to each other about them in a way that's bringing them closer, rather than what's often happening at the beginning of the work that I'm doing with them, is that I see them talking to them about each other in a way that they're just both feeling so stressed and disconnected that it feels like all they can do is cause more disconnection. And the change that I see is them moving from feeling like that to realizing that actually even all the tough things in life are the things that we can connect over as well. They're the ways that we can feel closer. It's a wonderful thing to see. Mm. So instead of seeing each other as the problem, they start to face the problem together as a team. No, it's not each individual as a problem. It's actually these are themes and patterns that show up. And I guess, I mean, it's interesting to reflect on this at the at the beginning of 2021 when we have been through a lot of hardship and there's been a lot of strain on couples connections in 2020 and interestingly enough when I kind of talk to my community about this I get very mixed bag you know when I talk to my clients when I talk to Instagram have you felt closer together from this year or have you felt more disconnected and struggled more and it's a real mixed bag I don't know what you're getting from your community that some couples seem to have really grown together through this hardship because maybe peeling away some of the busyness of day everyday life, not having to go to certain commitments that they would have not really wanted to go to anyway, working less away from the home, you know, being at home more. And that's given them space to have some of these difficult conversations that they never had the time for when they were just seeing each other for half an hour before bed. And all the way onto the other side where actually being on top of each other 24 seven has has really given rise to you know, more difficult conversation in a way that the couple wasn't able to handle. It's been kind of more explosive um, arguments. The little rifts turn into major rifts. And it's been, yeah, it's been a really interesting year and something that I've never witnessed before. What, what are your reflections from 2020 so far and the couple's work you've done? Do you kind of see the same mixed bag as I've seen? Yeah, I really have. I mean, obviously, the people that I'm working with directly tend to be the ones who have found it more difficult. But when I have asked my community on Instagram how it's been going for mm. you, I've had the same thing as you. I've I've noticed that there are some people who are really struggling and have found it really tough because, it, you know, it's been an enormous pressure. It's not natural mm-hmm. to spend all of this time together. Um, the amount of time that some couples are spending together. And, you know, we're having to be and do everything for our children. So we're trying to meet all their needs for education, Mm. you know, to have some kind of fun, social life, exercise, all the while trying to meet our own needs, trying to work. You know, it, it has put an enormous amount of pressure on. But it's true what you say as well, that for some couples, it's taken some of the pressures of life away and they've thrived through that. And that's lovely to see. Mm. And I guess as, as people who help with the intervention stage, um, you know, a therapist or counsellor or psychologist obviously helps with intervention when there's been a problem that we try to resolve or or helping with relationship distress. Obviously, we do get to see a skewed version of that, but it definitely has been far more strained because of the homeschooling or home education. And, 
you know, the furlough or a redundancy or another financial strains. There's been, you know, a huge amount of pressure on couples this year. So obviously, even the couples who've said it's been uh, more connected don't necessarily wish to stay as they are. They just have had insights around what they don't want to return to. You know, maybe maybe that's more obvious in my community where I work with high striving, ambitious people who work 70 hours a week, then maybe they realize I don't want to work 70 hours a week plus commute. Mm. Um, maybe I want to work less, maybe I want to work flexibly. So somewhere, the answer might lie somewhere in between what we had before and what we're currently having, because nobody wants to be, you know, um, stuck at home and not have their normal self care practices available. So I think that's that's the bit that I've been seeing more of that actually people realizing what really matters, what values they they hold and how they want to go forwards with that. I guess that's something we reflect or maybe should reflect on more when we become parents as well, though, you know, what actually really matters to us when we go from this huge transition from having total freedom, can do what we want when we want to having actually quite limited freedom, especially in the early days, uh, you know, the first year of the first child's life is a huge learning curve for, for new parents what, what can you tell the listeners about that sense of that tr- transitions and how we how we talk to our partner about what matters to us now it's so important i mean the research has found that one of the most important deciders of how a relationship goes is whether we go on the journey through life together that you know we we all change there's lots of things that change us through our lives becoming parents is one of the biggest ones So the thing that happens that when we become parents is that it both highlights our values and it changes some of them. So there are some things that we just didn't even realize were important to us because we hadn't had the conversation. We hadn't gone there yet. And then there are other things that, you know, things change. We feel differently about things like work or money or family, how we're spending our free time. So as we go through that transition, we really need to recognize that we need to change. You know, your commitment needs to be to the relationship, not just to the person who you committed to, because they're going to change, you're going to change. So you need to be talking to each other all the time about how you feel about things, having those kind of open, longer conversations, not just talking about what we see in front of us, which unfortunately, when we have young children, it, that it, it can happen. It can become quite normal to just be talking about what are we doing today? What does everybody need? Because we're so overstretched by the whole thing. But making time to have longer conversations where you're asking each other about what's important to you now? What do you want to happen next in our life? What do you see for our future? What do you want us to be doing with our free time when we start to feel like we've got some again? You know, all of those kinds of conversations, they need to be had. Mm. And is there anything that you could recommend to couples who are currently expecting their first child, um, who've obviously not yet become parents, to facilitate this transition and journey in a more helpful way? I think um, really starting to talk about your relationship as much as you can is one of the things that's going to help you the most. So getting in the habit of having conversations regularly about how you're both feeling, about how things are, about what you need from each other, and then starting to think about how you're going to divide up what needs doing is really important as well, because that's one of the biggest things that couples fall out about. Because I mean, me and my husband always joke about it, that before we had children, it seemed like all we had to do was hang the washing out and go to the supermarket. And then somehow, it would, how do we have so many more jobs to do than we used to do before just because mm. we had a baby? It's just mind blowing the change that you go through. So you can't really see it coming, the difference it's going to be in terms of the, the demands on your time. So to get mm. into the habit right from the start about talking about who's doing what, that can protect us from 
just slipping into traditional gender roles that we don't really plan for or don't expect and not having that conversation. And then, you know, we quite often will think in the beginning, like, oh, you know, this is quite cute. I'm enjoying this. And then a few months or years down the line, we turn around to like, hang on, have we turned into our parents? Is this what we actually wanted? Mm. And being able to do that with a sense of humor, like you just illustrated with your, with your husband, can also be quite protective, can't it? When we kind of think, oh, I didn't realize how many pooey nappies we were going to have to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can't know what you don't know. So it sounds like it's, it's one thing to preempt, try to have these conversations, be open-minded about what's important before the baby comes, but then also keeping continuous kind of check-in you know, keeping tabs on each other throughout because these things will change. It sounds like you've highlighted that both, you know, you become more aware of your values, but they can also be dynamic and change as you go through, you know, your children growing up. So mm-hmm. what was an idea you had before you became parents may not be the same idea you want to have once the baby is here. So having a bit of flexibility and, and holding it quite gently sounds like that could be helpful. Mm-hmm. And one thing that we haven't talked about that I think I should have asked earlier when we're talking about the early stages of parenthood, but it's something that comes up time and time again, and I've seen you've talked about it before on Instagram as well. What if the, you know, in say, um, if the mother is breastfeeding, how does that impact on the early days of intimacy? How does that impact on libido? Is there anything we can share some insight about there? Yeah, it can have a big impact. It's really important to be aware of that those hormonal changes after birth, um, and particularly if you're breastfeeding, that obviously sort of extends the whole process. They can have a huge impact. You know, the the hormones from breastfeeding um, they can they can really diminish a woman's sex drive for quite a long time. Um, so that's something that it's really important to be aware of, so that you're able to keep having a conversation about that. Mm. What do you typically see in terms of how long this could uh, could affect women? Well, for lots of women, it doesn't have much of an impact and they, you know, quite feel kind of similarly to how they did before they were pregnant or when they were pregnant. Um, whereas for other women, it sometimes can have a really big impact and they just find that they don't really have much interest in sex for the duration of the time that they're breastfeeding and sometimes for a little while afterwards as well, because it takes some time for the hormones to regulate again. Mm. And it might have been preceded by maybe not having had that much intimacy in pregnancy as well. So maybe that particular couple might have gone without intimacy for quite a while. So that must be then difficult of maybe having had intimacy pre-pregnancy. Uh, we kind of bring it right back to that. If if that's been intimacy that's been done for like baby making rather than love making, we can then look at a couple that's had quite a long journey of not necessarily having had much connected sex, maybe then avoiding sex in pregnancy, which is quite common as well, having fears around hurting the baby. Mm-hmm. What, what can you kind of, if you see sort of the timeline of a couple like that, what's the most hopeful thing you can say to anyone who's listening who might have had that journey of actually it's been maybe a couple of years or even longer without having much sex at all? What can we give them as a sense of hope? I mean, I think it's really important to to tell people, first of all, just how common this is, that it's really normal, mm-hmm. that it's not just you. It's not something about your relationship. It's very, very common. And having sex in long-term relationships, it's it's not how we expect it to be. It very rarely do you find a couple where it continuously happens spontaneously. You know, having sex in long-term relationships is actually about a habit it's about mm. keeping the habit up. And for most of us, if we go through a bit of a dry spell, getting back on it 
is a bit of a challenge. It feels a bit weird after a while. It feels kind of just normal to do what we've been in the habit of doing, whether that's having sex or not having sex. So to recognize that that's what your challenge is, that your challenge is actually just to kind of get started again and to get in the habit again can hopefully feel a little bit more hopeful. You know, there's a bit more possibility there that, you know, you don't need to get to a place where you're feeling the kind of spontaneous desire that you did early on in the relationship. That might feel like a sort of overwhelming thought. How on earth are we ever going to get back there? Because I feel differently about my body. We've got less time. We're worried that the baby's going to wake up. You know, there's a lot going on. The, the, you know, you don't need to worry about that. What you need to think about is how you can find a way to feel close to your partner again and how you can make time for kissing and cuddling and holding each other and having conversation. And for most couples, creating the habit of doing those things that leaves them feeling close is just a huge leap forwards towards getting back into the habit of having sex again. Mm. So it's almost like that onwards trajectory that, you know, there is hope that you can reconnect it's going to take some awkward conversations, perhaps. It's going to take breaking some habits where it might have been because of exhaustion. You know, you were just routinely just getting into bed and not talking to each other. But then once the baby sleeps a bit better, perhaps that is a time where you think, actually, now we're getting a little bit more rest, a little bit more energy. Shall we try to think about how we can make our way back to this? It sounds like it's both talking and doing um, around this. Yeah, I mean, sometimes the the big hurdle can just be just saying, God, we haven't had a shag in ages, have we? <laughs> you know, actually just putting it out there in a way that doesn't feel like this kind of big, scary thing, but it's just acknowledging yeah. it so that then, you know, just even that in itself can be so connecting because then it gives your partner permission to say, yeah, I really miss it. Mm. Or I'm really nervous about it. Or, you know, what, mm. whatever they need to say about it, just to just start the conversation. Yeah. Because there can be a lot of these fears that, you know, I guess, especially women having after if they're given vaginal birth, there can be a lot of fears and, and nerves around that. It can sort of like, oh, I don't feel that my bits are where they used to be or mm -hmm. things are different or I don't know if my pelvic floor can hold it. And even just the act of, of you know, having penetrative sex can feel really difficult for someone after, after vaginal birth. So having those conversations where we don't have to say penetration. But, you know, maybe just talking about, you know, I miss you. I miss being together. I miss the how, you know, how we used to have sex and then trying to figure out what that means for each person. But it sounds like, you know, with all these experiences you've had, all the stories you've heard, that there is still hope that even if it's been a long, dry spell, that people can do things to get back together. Yeah, definitely. Well, we sometimes get into a bit of a, a kind of a bad habit of um, when we're not having sex, just tending not to touch each other much at all. And sometimes it can be about a kind of nervousness around inviting something that we're not sure if we want or we're sure that we don't want, um, which it can be helpful to talk about. But even when there's not that, it can just be a, a kind of just a habit that we just we stop touching each other as much. We stop holding each other as much. And one thing that can be really helpful for couples who haven't had sex yet and are feeling nervous about it or excited about it or don't know how they feel about it can be to suggest just lying naked together, you know, just recognizing we haven't been naked together for quite some time. It's probably going to be a bit weird. Can we just just try it and just just have a naked cuddle and see how that goes? So really kind of slowing it down and taking it step by step. And also definitely taking the pressure off the idea of penetrative sex as well. You know, penetrative sex is just one kind of sex. It's not the sex that most people with vulvas find the most pleasurable. 
So it's mm. really important to be thinking about all the different things that you do in bed, all the different things that you could do in bed and having a conversation about that where you're not assuming that when you say the word sex, you're talking about penis and vagina sex. Mm. It's just really helpful to know because there's the sense of, you know, obviously uh, reconnecting with a previous episode I did with um, the Becca Shalcross around the patriarchy and the pressures the women face that this is obviously a bigger societal pressure around sex, meaning penis and vagina sex for, for hetero couples. Mm -hmm. And that can be really pressurizing that for, you know, women who may want to get stimulation in other ways and might actually even find that more comfortable after birth while they're dealing with recovery and healing, then that actually may not even fancy that whatsoever. So this again, keeping open dialogue sounds really important. Mm -hmm. So if it is, you know, obviously we're trying to give people hope that it is possible to reconnect. There are things you can do. When, in your experience of working with couples, is it actually more compassionate to go separate ways, to, to end a connection rather than reconnecting? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's impossible to give a rule of thumb, really, because every situation is so different. Um, but I would say that it is better for everyone to have a peaceful separation than a warlike marriage. So if things are going on for a long time and, and you're both really unhappy then it may well be better to separate. But I think it's always worth giving counselling with a therapist that you both like and respect a decent go before making that decision. Mm. Because until we've made sense of the patterns that are happening in our relationship, we're likely to repeat them in future relationships. So, you know, I, I'm certainly not anti-divorce at all. I think sometimes it is absolutely the best thing for both people. But I also think that we learn a lot through relationships and it's probably best for everyone if you can make sure that you've learned what you want to learn from a relationship before you walk away. Mm. So even if there is no possibility of reconciliation, making that process amicable, especially for those who have young children involved, is really, really beneficial because you learn something about what went wrong, even if it's not possible. And I guess the longer you leave it without getting support, if your relationship is distressed, the, the harder it is to uh, potentially to reconcile. Um, I don't know if you've seen that as well, that the, uh, I think the statistics are that it's on average six years before a couple seeks help professionally after being distressed. I don't know if that resonates with you. Sometimes I wonder if I mix that up. No, no, but I'm, I'm pretty sure I've read that somewhere. No, no, you're absolutely um, right. It is. It's six years. Yeah. And how does that, you know, fit for you when you, when you sit with people? What, what could you, if you had a wish, what would you wish that people would do? And rather than waiting six years, what would you want them to do and when? It really, really fits with my experience. The most common thing that I hear from people I work with is I wish we'd come sooner. Yeah. So what I would really, really hope for people is that they would not let any kind of residual stigma that might still be hanging around in our society about relationship therapy impact their decision and just recognize that if you've got a problem with your car that you don't know how to fix, you go and see a mechanic, you know, you don't try and do your own dentistry just because you could get the tools and get into your own mouth, you know. <laughs> I don't know how well that analogy works, but, you know. To just... It works surprisingly well. I mean, imagine doing your own root canal, which is because I sometimes use the analogy of a root canal when I think of couples work that it's, you know, it's pain that's going to do you good. Yeah. Uh, and I would not do my own root canal for sure. <laughs> no. You know, so just it, you know, it's totally fine. It's totally normal to to want to um, speak to somebody who has got expertise in this area. You know, couples therapists are just people 
who have spent a lot of time studying what happens in relationships. And so when people come to me and they tell me about what's going on in their relationship, I listen to them and I try and make sense of what's going on, informed by all that studying, you know, that we've both done. And then just having that kind of perspective on it of being a third party who's outside the relationship, you're able to notice the patterns that are happening so much more easily. Because, you know, even in my own relationship, I find it really tough sometimes. Me and my husband will occasionally see my therapist together because it's really, really hard to see it when you're actually in it. All you can see is Mm. usually what the other person's doing that's driving you mad. And sometimes you step back and have a bit of perspective on it and you can see your own part in it. But it can be hard to spot the patterns that are going on there. So, you know, all I really do is listen to both of you and work out what's going on, what the patterns are and offer up what I see for, you know, confirmation or no, no, that's not it. Let's work it out a bit longer. And then talk about different ways that those patterns could be interrupted and other things that you could do instead that might work better. So it can, you know, it can be painful sometimes, but like you say, it is a good pain. It is really rewarding. And the benefits that you get from recognizing this stuff will carry with you for a long, long time. So I really encourage people not to wait because the sooner you go, the longer you'll feel the benefit. Mm. And I guess also thinking about the dentistry analogy, there's the sense of we wouldn't intervene in our own mouths in that way when we're in deep pain and, you know, do our own root canal. I guess what we can do and what we can teach couples and what I wish that we talked about in schools even is about how to have good relationship habits, how we can talk to people, how we can you know, um, open up about feelings and labeling our emotions, which I guess would be things like brushing your teeth and flossing. And that is good stuff that we all need to do to prevent tooth decay and prevent needing further intervention. So that's the bit that I would wish for, that not only that people will come to me sooner, but also that I was able to reach those who who don't come and just preventing them from, from gaining injury in their relationships. Yeah, thinking of it in terms of maintenance and prevention. Mm. Maybe that we, that's, that's what we're going to do. We're going to conquer the world with our prevention plan. <laughs> Talk to schools about all the ways that they can um, help kids understand love a bit earlier. Oh, anyway, that's that. I love that so much to get into schools is one of my dreams, maybe one day. Yeah, it would be fantastic. But I guess it's bigger than the scope of our chat today. And we're coming towards the end of our chat. And I've got so many good um, good learning points from you, Catherine. But I wanted to ask a few more things about you personally as well, because this podcast is about, you know, trying to let go of the pressure of perfection, trying to find pause for yourself, trying to find rest and recovery. And, you know, having been following you on Instagram for a while now and seeing your growth, seeing all the achievements you've had, you know, both with your counseling business and with your community on Instagram, how do you give yourself the permission to pause? How do you rest and and recover? I mean, I I definitely struggle with that. Like most people, I think, um, Mostly because I love my work, actually, and I I have a lot of ideas and I, I thrive on the sense of purpose that it gives me. Mm. But I also know that reaching a burnout would be, well, it would just be absolutely disastrous for me professionally as well as personally. You know, we know that we can't do the kind of work that we do unless we're well in ourselves. So mm. I'm, I'm pretty good, I think, at watching out for the signs of depletion. Um, I like to think about taking the rest that I need in terms of making sure that I fit some in every day, every week and every year. So I'm I'm very good at going to bed early because I just am naturally a morning person and I just run out of steam. 
So I'm good. I'm good at making sure that I get rest. And then I, you know, I make sure that I take some time to do fun stuff with my family and usually my friends as well, but not so much at the moment, unfortunately, in pandemic times at the weekends. Mm. And then a couple of times a year, I, I take a couple of weeks off, although I do tend to spend one of those, some of that time on, on projects. But I suppose there's a difference, isn't there, between the the work that we choose to do that we're really excited about, that that can give us that sense of purpose that keeps us going so it can feel like a kind of play. So it, mm, it, can, make, absolutely. it, it can be a pause from the other kind of work, can't it? Yeah, and I guess it's an intention setting there that actually you, you, you're going into that purposefully, even if it's a, a week off, say, your client work, and then you're free to kind of play around with ideas and be spontaneous and creative and inspired i think that can light us up and re-energize us as well that you know not you know the only it's not the only way to recover and rest by lying still and doing nothing that's you know one way of recovering so it's just being careful for those who are very ambitious who's listening that actually um it's good to have a mixture of both kinds of recovery that you know having inspired playfulness is important too we can be active in our rest and recovery we don't have to just be sitting still Mm. and do you use playfulness in your business as well in in any way you know can we be playful and creative in sessions with couples or is that kind of more reserved for your family time outside of work I mean I would say I'm very playful at work I actually sit under a picture that says don't forget to play in my office because I think it's so important because, you know, part of the work that we do with couples is modeling, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And playfulness is such a key component of any healthy relationship. That's actually put just a big smile on my face, just thinking about you sitting there underneath that picture. I think that's, uh, that's amazing because it gives that permission, doesn't it, to, to the couples already when you start working with them. Yeah, I, I mean, I do love it. I, it's great. <laughs> I think it's really important. You know, it's it's vital, really, that we that we're playful in our relationships. We need to be able to take risks and to be vulnerable, to try new things. You know, like we've been talking about sexually, but in all areas of our relationship, you know, sometimes to, we need that kind of permission to be able to try things without knowing what the outcome might be, or not even having an outcome in mind. And often, couples come to therapy because they're stuck, don't they? So it's really important for me to model through my behavior a kind of freedom to do things differently to to give them that permission to be different with each other Mm, so that's a really nice way of how we can adopt play in a way that's making the serious not 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 sort of light-hearted but making making playfulness help us to solve problems where we're stuck that actually that can see things from different angles and allow ourselves to take new avenues and not knowing how that's going to work out in our relationship so that's really really nice Catherine and how you're modeling that to your couples as well that it's okay to be silly it's okay to play around with this and not know exactly what will happen so thank you so much for joining me I just want to ask one more final thing which is what's kind of one tangible takeaway you want to give to the listeners, you know, either a permission you want to give them or any pressure you want to take off them, what would it be? I suppose thinking about what we've been talking about, about how connection happens when we're able to lean into those vulnerabilities. I suppose what I'd like to give the listeners permission to to do is to be imperfect, you know, to recognize that your partner doesn't actually need you to be perfect at all. In fact, it would be awful to be in a relationship with someone who was perfect. It would make you feel terrible about yourself. You know, we need our partners to be real. And so, you know, I'd like I'd like to give that permission to loosen up a bit, to play, to take some risks and to keep feeling free to try doing things a bit differently, because that's the only way that we can really keep 
breathing life into long-term relationships. That's a really powerful permission and so in line with what I believe in and so on brand for this podcast. I couldn't ask for anything better. So thank you so much for, for mentioning that. And obviously we've already said that you're called Insight and Connection, but where can people find you if they want to listen to more of what you've got to offer? Yeah, that's right. I'm on um, Instagram and Facebook at Insight and Connection. Fantastic. So I'll put all the links to that in the show notes as well. And thank you so much for joining me today, Catherine. It's been really exciting to talk to a fellow um, couples expert about what we've seen in the past year, but also how we can give a little bit of hope to those who are struggling through those, those post-baby years or maybe struggle to reconnect after the babies are even bigger now. So thank you so much for your insight and your wisdom. It's my pleasure. It's been lovely chatting with you. Thank you, Michaela. Thank you, dear listener, for staying all the way to the end of this discussion. We had such a rich conversation between two people whose purpose is so well aligned in supporting couples. So I hope you've learned some more realistic expectations around sex after parenthood. It is possible and it will happen again, but you do need to have some awkward conversations and you do need to do something about changing your habits. Going about it with kindness and compassion is key, not blaming and shaming yourself or your partner. As you'll learn more about this in my upcoming book, The Lasting Connection, I actually have even a whole chapter on sex in it. You can pre-order now on Amazon by looking up The Lasting Connection by Michaela Thomas. As always, do take care of yourself. This episode of the Pause Purpose Play podcast was presented by me, Michaela Thomas, and you can find me on thethomasconnection.co.uk. And because great work rests on having a great team, this episode was kindly edited by Emily Crosby Media.